You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today, I want to talk about a number of issues. The first thing I want to talk about is this uh, new COVID-19 legislation that's recently passed the House of Representatives and is making its way onto the Senate. There's a good article in a a legal firm's publication recently. A firm is called Groom Law. And I want to um, read from it and talk about some of the issues that it raises that are in the bill. Groom Law website starts out by talking about that on February 27th, the House of Representatives narrowly passed the bill called H.R. 1319. Now, HR is House of Representatives, and it's Bill Number 1319, and it's called the American Rescue Act or the Rescue Plan. It didn't pass by very much. You can tell how close this was. In fact, it was bipartisanship against the bill, not for the bill. So it passed 219 to 212. So you can see how close the House of Representatives is in legislation. There were a number of Democrats who voted against this legislation because they're really in very conservative areas, and it represents some of the potential uh, switches in um, in the uh, election of 2022 when it comes up. And so those representatives being very careful to represent their constituencies because this bill, uh, a vote for it, would probably come back to uh, to hurt their reelection chances. But in any case, it's indicative of the kind of legislation that's likely to uh, uh, go through the House with very partisan, not bipartisan, but very partisan approach to legislation. There's no real attempt in this bill to reach out to any moderate Democrats or to any of the Republicans, all of whom voted against this bill. So the Senate will now take up this sweeping so-called stimulus package later in the week, probably uh, the week of March 14th. And the lawmakers aim to pass a final version of the bill um, before the federal unemployment benefits run out for 10 million people, somewhere around that March 14th date. So the Groom Law website previously published um, an alert um, detailing the rescue plan's pension provision. So what they're doing here is they're going to give us an overview of the uh, package's significant provisions, uh, including what are called COBRA subsidies and Affordable Care Act subsidies, and then some other issues related to tax provisions that I'll touch on as well. Now, for many of you out there familiar with healthcare, you know what COBRA is, but for those of you who are not familiar with COBRA, it actually comes from a, um, a 1980s bill that uh, name that typically, uh, you know, is, is done periodically. It's uh, the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act back in the 1980s, and so it's always called COBRA for the letters of that name, even though COBRA bills actually pass periodically. The 1980s bill is a very special bill because that bill's name was given to the potential for any employee who loses their job for one reason or another uh, can continue uh, on their employer's plan uh, for a period of time under various restrictions. And so we've come to label that kind of continuation of coverage as being a COBRA plan. 
So under this um, uh, Recovery Act bill, what happens to those COBRA subsidies that are currently provided? In the past, an employee had to pick up both the employee portion of the premium uh, and the employer's portion of the premium and then pay an extra 2% administrative charge on top of that. So for employees that, while they were working, uh, had significant employer subsidy, many times 50, 75%, 90%, and sometimes even 100% subsidy for their health insurance, when somebody goes on COBRA, they have to pick up all that cost from the employer as well as any uh, individual contributions that they were making. So it can be quite a shock, a big expense, uh, when somebody loses their job and then has to pay the full cost of insurance because now it's even harder, they have no job. So the rescue plan includes temporary COBRA subsidies for COBRA qualified beneficiaries where the employee's qualifying event was an involuntary termination of employment or reduction in hours. In other words, that the employee was basically fired or had their hours significantly reduced because of the um, uh, COVID-19 issues that, that arose that had employers cut back. So the subsidies would apply to assistance-eligible individuals, which appears to include both an employee and dependents who had elected or will elect uh, COBRA coverage. The rescue plan allows assistance-eligible individuals to pay just 15% of the COBRA premium, with the remaining 85% paid by the employer, the plan, or insurer, and reimbursed by the government through a refundable tax credit. Sounds great, and in many ways it is. People who have lost their jobs want to continue with insurance are now would be required only to pay 15% of the premium rather than 102% of the premium that they otherwise uh, were having to pay to, uh, to get COBRA coverage. Well, that's the good part, and hopefully this works out well. The negative is that by providing this kind of coverage, it kind of disincentivizes people to actually go and get another job, certainly um, another job where they might otherwise have some health care benefits or even ones where they don't have any health care benefits. Maybe for these individuals, it's better for them not to take that job and get their health insurance through this COBRA subsidy. But hopefully it works out because there's a lot of people that will really need this. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, the original legislation reported out of the Ways and Means and education and labor committees that provided the tax credit would be claimed by the employer for self-insured coverage, uh, the insurer for um, insured coverage, and the plan for multi multiple employer plans. Well, that created some sort of a problem on who would actually get this tax credit. So at the end of the day, there was a manager's amendment to the bill that basically says that changing the language so that the employer is the entity that claims the tax credit for both the insured and the self-funded coverage, where the employer's group plan is subject to COBRA and under um, that code or is an ERISA plan. So basically what's going to happen is that a tax credit is going to be claimed by the employer, and then they will receive a smaller portion of the premium uh, that 15% from the person uh, claiming COBRA coverage. So it actually works out 
uh, pretty well with that amendment. But as you can see, that's a little bit of an insight to the uh, sausage making that can go on in, in Washington where something comes out of committee and it really makes little sense. But hopefully somewhere along the way, uh, somebody makes that change either in the legislation or ultimately uh, sometimes it goes through regulation and gets changed. But anyway, as of right now, the subsidy is expected to begin for coverage periods beginning on April 1st, 2021, and ending on September 30th, 2021. So it's a short period of time which will keep some of the potential abuses or people staying on this type of a program and not taking jobs that might otherwise be open to them. Uh, so they otherwise might lose this coverage and that's not a good economic decision for them. So this bill actually has some, some good pieces to it, makes some sense. The subsidy would end sooner if the qualified beneficiary's maximum COBRA coverage period ends or if the individual is eligible for another group plan or Medicare. If an individual pays more than 15% of the premium during this time, the employer, the plan, or insurer is required to refund the excess. So again, this kind of makes uh, a good program. It says that uh, it terminates if the individual is eligible for another group plan. And it does say eligible. So if he works for another company and is eligible but decides not to take it, this would still end. So it's not as bad as it could be. The language actually seems to make some sense. Or if they turn 65 and become eligible for Medicare, then this COBRA subsidy would not uh, not exist. Uh, now, the rescue plan also provides additional enrollment options for individuals who are already had an involuntary termination of employment or reduction in the hours within the past 18 months and did not at the time elect COBRA or drop COBRA. So in this case, if you have had a problem with insurance coverage, you lost your job and you didn't have the money to pay for COBRA, you didn't elect it or you started with it and then you dropped it in the last 18 months, you would um, also be swept in under this legislation. So these individuals would have a new election period of 60 days following the day that they receive a new COBRA notice. So anybody who's in the last 18 months that's left their job, been fired, uh, had hours reduced, they will get a new notice uh, for this new COBRA edition. And additionally, employers will be permitted to allow assistance-eligible individuals to change elections to other plan options that have the same or lower cost premiums. Now, that's an optional thing for employers to do, but people can then, if there's multiple options with the employer, they can make some changes maybe from what they even started with under COBRA. So the rescue plan requires employers to update the COBRA notices sent to assistance-eligible individuals to describe the subsidies and to issue extended COBRA election notices within 60 days of the date of applicability. Failure to do so would treat, be treated as a failure of the COBRA notice requirements. Employers must provide a notice of expiration before the subsidy expires. So individuals are going to have to be notified that it's now available, have 60 days to make a choice. They've got to put that out there or the employer is subject to having violated the notice requirements. The legislation sets out content for these notices and directs the Secretary of Labor to publish model notices. Now, all this is going to have to be done pretty quickly because that April 1st date is coming up rather soon, and this is a limited period benefit. It's actually a really good idea, in my opinion, to allow people to maintain coverage, 
They don't have to go into a government exchange. They can continue with their employer plan, and the COBRA premium has some subsidy. The real question is going to be, come September, is this thing just extended? Is the government going to continue to provide additional subsidies? Is this really a temporary program? Or will, like many pieces of legislation in Congress that are well-intended, outrun their real value? And it winds up being more and more subsidy to the middle class and actually could prevent people from going back to work, uh, create more unemployment and more dependency on the federal government. So we'll see where this particular um, piece of legislation goes. But right now, I would say it's a good thing for a lot of people who otherwise uh, wouldn't have health insurance. So I applaud the um, administration as much as I differ with it on many issues. On this particular one, I applaud them for trying to do some things to help people in real need. Now, the question is, will they let it go for its temporary use, or are they going to make this more permanent as another way to create dependency on the federal government? So with that, let's take a break and let's come back and look at some additional parts of the uh, rescue plan and see how it has affected uh, health insurance as we move forward. So stay with me. We're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll come back for another segment of Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio. We will be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're continuing to listen to Healthcare Insight. What we're talking about today is uh, the bill recently passed by the House, the new COVID-19 legislation that they're calling the um, American Rescue Act and uh, or the Rescue Plan, either term, passed narrowly, and we're going to see what happens as it goes to the Senate. There are some issues that are in this bill that are likely to change, uh, some of which have been ruled as inappropriate under something called the, um, uh, oh gosh, under the rules of the Senate, the parliamentarian uh, can rule out some things if it's not related to tax. And so we're going to take a look at that. Um, the word I was looking for that I was hesitating on is the Byrd Amendment. The Byrd Amendment is the um, issue that says only things related to taxes 
can be included in a bill that's going to be considered under the Reconciliation Act. And again, those of you out there probably are well aware if you're at all tapped into uh, Washington um, lingo, but the Reconciliation Act is uh, something that the um, Democrats can use and Republicans have used it in the past on certain types of bills involving taxes where it can be passed under the rules of reconciliation, which means only a majority is needed to pass the bill. Most bills in the Senate uh, need to have 60 votes in favor, or if they don't, it's what's called a filibuster. You can filibuster a bill and say that, um, you know, it needs 60 votes and can't go any further. So it gives the minority in the Senate a much stronger voice and being able to get together with the other side. Uh, the majority has to compromise a little bit to bring in at least uh, whatever number of people in the minority that to make up the 60 votes. In this case, it takes additional 10 Republicans to vote with Democrats in order to break a filibuster. So there are a number of things that any new um, administration wants to do, and they know they could be controversial, and they want to push them through so they can do it under uh, reconciliation relative to taxes. And all this stuff with the COVID-19 is considered to be a tax bill, so they can use the reconciliation for it. So we've talked already about COBRA in the first segment of this hour. What I want to talk about now is the additional subsidies under the Affordable Care Act that are built into this legislation. So the rescue plan makes significant but temporary changes to the existing Affordable Care Act premium subsidies. So keep that in mind. They are very significant but supposedly temporary now, again, just like we talked about with COBRA, are temporary changes going to wind up, as is typical in Washington, being permanent? So you get your the camel's nose in the tent by saying, oh, it's all just permanent and it's for a specific cause or a specific reason that makes sense at the time, but then it winds up being permanent in Washington. And that's the great danger of allowing you to go down this slippery slope of making significant changes that one size says is temporary, but in reality, uh, it's only temporary in order for to get them a favorable pricing uh, from the scorekeepers in Washington called the um, uh, Congressional um, Budget uh, Accounting Office. So what is the temporary changes you're talking about? Well, for 2021 and 2022, the bill would eliminate the upper income limit for eligibility for premium tax credits, which is currently set at 400% of the federal poverty level, and would increase the amount of premium tax credits by decreasing the amount that an individual must contribute to the cost of coverage. So basically what they're saying here is we're going to provide more subsidies to more people. Uh, many people who have no subsidy today don't need a subsidy they're making plenty of money paying for their own coverage, and the employer is subsidizing uh, their premium in most cases. And so this bill is a little strange in the way it's uh, developed, that it's actually giving money to higher income people, which Democrats are always saying, no, I want to give more to lower income people. Well, the reality is that's the old Democratic Party. The new Democratic Party is about trying to win over higher income individuals and uh, giving them more and more subsidies to sort of sucker them into uh, more federal uh, dependency. So 
While the income limit uh, increase expands the availability of subsidies to many more households, the bill contains a requirement that individuals contribute a percentage of their income towards coverage. The percentage is currently set at 8.5% of household income. For those with incomes of 400% or more, meaning that the more an individual makes, the more that individual is expected to contribute to the cost of coverage. Additionally, because the amount of premium tax credits available will vary based on the cost of coverage, there will be a level of income at which individuals' required contribution will exceed the cost of coverage and no premium tax credit will be available. So it's not going to give it to everybody automatically, but as you make more and more income, um, it may go away, it may decrease, but you're still giving some level of subsidy to a vast number of people that today don't need it, don't get it, and you wonder why the Democrats want to do that. The bill also provides uh, special support for individuals who receive unemployment compensation. Now, this is something, again, that sounds very good, but is very dangerous. And it's hard to trust politicians to actually do what they're saying when, again, they say something is temporary. If you are truly unemployed, and the first segment, we talked about COBRA, the extension of coverage from an employer that gets additional subsidies. Well, this also provides support for individuals who receive unemployment compensation as an alternative. So maybe they were individuals who are now unemployed. They've lost their job. They run through the COBRA period. Maybe they've been out of work for even longer than the 18 months we talked about earlier. So for 2021, a taxpayer who receives or is approved to receive unemployment compensation for a week or more could be treated as an eligible for premium subsidies at any income level above 133% of the poverty level. The reason that that's in there is because below 133% of the poverty level, they get uh, Medicaid and so there's no need for them to have premium subsidies because if, if they fall in that category, they get Medicaid, and there's actually no cost for the Medicaid coverage. So it, incomes above 133% of the poverty will be disregarded for purposes of determining the contribution percentage the taxpayer must contribute towards coverage. Because the contribution level for incomes up to 150% of the poverty level would be zero under the bill, an individual who received unemployment compensation would not be expected to contribute towards the cost of the subsidy-eligible coverage. The bill also suspends repayment of excess subsidies for 2020. Now, let me see if I can unpack that a little bit for those listening out there in the audience here. Basically, for anybody who receives unemployment compensation, they're going to get free uh, health insurance. Now, again, that's great if it's temporary, but also recognize the danger. If somebody's unemployed and they're getting unemployment insurance, they're getting an extra $400 on top of what their states provide for unemployment compensation. They may be eligible for other government benefits of, of food stamps, of some housing subsidies, and now we're going to give them free health insurance. Well, the incentive to get back to work to support your family or support yourself if you don't have a family is now greatly compromised. 
people who are going to get all these benefits and all this money from the federal government are not necessarily going to go back to work because they may be getting more money now that they're going to have free health insurance. Now, if this only lasts for 2021, that might work. But again, I say this over and over again because it is so critical to understanding how Washington, D.C. and politicians work. They can put this in now, but come the end of 2021, they're going to say, oh, we've got so many tens of thousands of of people out there still unemployed. And if we cut them off now, they're going to lose their health insurance. They're going to lose their unemployment benefits. And lordy, lordy, what are we going to do with those folks? Well, we know what we should do with them. It's much like what President Trump did. He put them to work. We got employment down to three and a half percent. Every category, male, female, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, young males, young black males, whatever the category was, they reached their historic lows in terms of unemployment. So what's better? Providing for your family, getting a job, being able to pay for these benefits out of the jobs that you get, or going on the government dole and losing your dignity of being able to provide for yourself or your family. That's the issue that we're talking about with this legislation. It sounds great. The Democrats have always had that kind of philosophy. Don't let a good crisis go to waste. And certainly the crisis that we're talking about is the pandemic. And it's kind of like, how much can I cram into the idea that we're in a pandemic and we have to pass legislation to make people more dependent? We know with the vaccines that hospitalizations are dramatically reduced. Death rates are going down. People are able to get out. States are opening up. They're removing their uh, business closures. Uh, I live in Florida, and we've been open the whole time. Our schools are open. Our restaurants are open. Our sports facilities are open. And other states are moving that way. Recently, uh, Texas announced the same thing. They're opening up very shortly here, I think next week. So with other states doing the same thing, we're getting back to normal, which means that there are going to be business opportunities. There's going to be jobs opening up, especially in the restaurant business, in the uh, service business, even being able to go back to your job in an office is going to be more acceptable. Now, so many people have learned to do remote uh, work that I think the idea of having a central location where everybody comes every day is going to be diminished because we're now used to how to work together from remote locations. And for businesses, it saves a lot of money. They don't have to pay rent. They don't have to have expensive furniture, uh, meeting rooms, all those sorts of things will be downsized to be a much more efficient uh, economy. But all that relates back to, are we going to give more and more people unemployment benefits? Now we're going to give them free health care. That could be worth uh, $10,000, dollars $20,000 or more. They're not going to want to go back to work. So it affects the job market as we move forward. So if this is temporary, fine. This is one of the more direct payments that we're actually making uh, that relate to COVID in some ways. Uh, Much of the other bill is probably over a trillion dollars in the bill. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, COVID. In fact, some are estimating that only 10% of the bill actually relates to the pandemic. So at least this does relate to the pandemic. But don't be fooled if by the end of 2021, 
Congress extends this benefit and continues to provide an avenue for continued dependency on the federal government. Why would they do that? The reason they do that is because then people will vote for Congress people who will run on the basis of increasing that dependency, giving more and more benefit, giving more and more subsidies, just getting people tied into the idea that they can get something for free, that somebody else is paying the bill for them and that they don't have to take a job or they can work under the radar, make some money, not report it, work in that black market of of income, if you will. And that's just not the way that this country ought to be working or how we ought to encourage people uh, to uh, support their families. Well, let's take another break. And let's come back in a few minutes and continue talking about health care. You're listening to America's Web Radio. We will be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m., Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is uh, Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. I want to take a break from the normal presentations that I've been making and go to a presentation that was made recently on Fox News by Brian Blaze. He was being interviewed on um, a financial program there, and he was talking about the Obamacare subsidies. So since we've been talking about that today, I want to bring in Brian, who really is a very well-informed speaker on the topic. He's a former Trump health policy advisor, and he really knows what he's talking about. So let's take a break here and go to a a presentation that Brian uh, made. And let me ask the questions that might have been asked by the TV commentator and then focus on... Brian's responses. So, Brian, we're glad to um, have you on the program today. Would you talk about the subsidies that are in this new COVID bill, what's happening with subsidies to Obamacare, and how does that affect uh, individuals out there that may be listening today uh, to this program? You know, as you know, Obamacare significantly increased premiums for individual market coverage. And this is where people go who don't get health insurance through their uh, through their employer 
or through a government program. And it made subsidies available that are financed by taxpayers uh, for this coverage to be more affordable. But it capped them at 400 percent of the poverty line, which is about one hundred and six thousand dollars for a family of four. Now, Obamacare enrollment has been very disappointing, way below projections. And the Democrat solution is to increase these subsidies. And they're doing it in two ways. So people that currently qualify for one, they're going to get a small increase. But they're also lifting the cap at 400 percent of the poverty line. What this is going to do is lead to a small benefit for lower income families and a massive benefit for upper income families. Brian, I've mentioned before on several programs and even earlier today about the change in subsidies. And would you put it into real tangible concepts and numbers that people could understand how much money is actually going to different income levels in the country? Because I think it's really going to surprise people how much money is actually going with some specific examples that people might be able to more effectively relate to how massive this program is in giving a lot more money to higher income people who really should be able to afford themselves with the only real purpose of creating a dependency on federal government, not just of low income poor folks, but of higher income people so that they can create a dominance in elections of people who are thankful they're getting money regardless of what their income is. So let me give you a concrete example. Say you have a family of four headed by a 60-year-old. If they make $45,000, this proposal increases their benefit by $1,000. Let's say we triple their income and they're at $135,000. They're going to qualify for a subsidy of $18,000 a year to purchase health insurance. Let's double their income further and say $270,000. This proposal is going to give them a subsidy of $6,000. You know, in some parts of the country, you're going to have couples that make half a million dollars or more that will qualify for thousands of dollars in subsidies. Brian, we heard from the very beginning of Obamacare that everybody was going to get coverage. We had 50 million uninsured. It was going to basically lower it down to everybody's got coverage. They're going to have enormous subsidies for coverage. What's happened that now we need to add more subsidies? Uh, Are people just not buying the Obamacare if they don't want it, if they can afford to self-insure, if you will? What are the real numbers on what was supposed to be insured under Obamacare, and how many people are there today? There were supposed to be 25 million people in the exchanges right now, and there's about 10 million, and the vast majority receive large subsidies. So yeah, it turns out, you know, if you're middle or upper income, uh, you don't qualify for one of these subsidies, you're just not buying coverage. So this is a way that the Democrats are trying to address that problem. They're not looking at sort of, uh, you know, cutting the underlying per costs that Obamacare has caused to be exorbitant. They're just throwing more taxpayer money at it. Brian, you're an expert and understand how the Congressional Budget Office measures and analyzes the cost of programs. They have said it's going to cost $34 billion over the next two years. Well, we typically look at 10-year time frames for costs in the federal government level. So is it just five times that uh, $34 billion or about um, $170 billion that will ultimately hit an increase of deficit? Or is it much more? What are the other dynamics 
that come into play that the politicians really don't tell us about. What's going to happen to employer coverage? How much of a change are employers going to make? And what do you think the ultimate cost of this benefit, these extra subsidies, is actually going to be over the next number of years? It is. And to, to be clear, so these subsidies are payments that are made from the U.S. Treasury directly to health insurance companies, and people can only access them if they purchase Obamacare plans. And actually, if you extrapolate this over 10 years, the cost will be much greater than your than the five times thirty four billion dollars because employers will have incentives to drop coverage. By keeping it limited to two years, uh, employers are unlikely to drop coverage because they don't want to disrupt the coverage that their employees have. But these subsidies are so large now that employers will reorganize themselves and they'll stop offering uh, benefits. And I think you could see a 10-year cost of this approaching half a trillion dollars. You know there's more than the subsidies for the exchange that is changing under this bill. One of the other big areas is Medicaid that is generally insurance for the poor. The take away the aged, blind, disabled, and the um, uh, nursing home benefits under Medicaid, and focus on the healthcare benefits given to what's typically called the TANF population, the temporary assistance for needy families. They get coverage under Medicaid. Now we all know that Obamacare was basically an expansion of Medicaid. That was the real target of the change. Now, it put in the exchanges, as you said, they haven't been particularly successful, but the expansion of Medicaid that would cover people above 133% of the poverty level was really the target. But about 12 states, I guess, have not expanded uh, the Medicaid program because of the uncertainty of what the federal government subsidies would be, the quality of the program, moving more and more people away from private insurance, which has greater access to physicians into a Medicaid program that has been fraught with waste, fraud, and abuse. So there are about 12 states, I think, if you'll uh, uh, reinforce that number, if that's the number. And tell us how the Medicaid program is really going to change under this bill that the Democrats are moving ahead uh, to pass in very short order. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of change. And how are they trying to coerce states into accepting the Medicaid expansion that many states have refused to accept in the past? They're proposing uh, for two years to increase the uh, federal reimbursement rate by 5%. Uh, for the traditional population for states that expand. Um, They are, you know, states that have expanded, they've obviously seen costs uh, far greater than projection, um, and you haven't seen very good health outcomes. So there's been a lot of states that have looked at that and have still, they've decided, despite all the federal money, have decided not to expand their Medicaid programs. This is a way to try to sort of bribe those states to expand um, with a two-year boost in funding. Thanks for that answer. And can you tell me again how many states have not expanded the uh, Medicaid program? Because I know there was a lot of resistance when it first came out. It went to the Supreme Court. Uh, The federal government was trying to coerce states, and they decided that they couldn't do that. That was unconstitutional. But many states, typically Democratic states, expanded originally, and then a number of Republican states like Ohio expanded 
Um, what's the current number that have not expanded? And are there a couple of major states that um, we're looking at um, that maybe take this coercion and make the expansion possible uh, over the next year? It's, it's 12 states right now, including big states like Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Okay, and those three states that you mentioned, three of those 12 are pretty major political states, Texas, Florida, and Georgia, and the governorships of those states are all up for re-election in 2022. So I guess expansion of Medicaid is going to be a big topic for those elections. The Democrats will really be pushing hard to have those states adopt the expansion of Medicaid. So can you tell us a little bit about what has been the effect of the states that have expanded Medicaid? Has it improved the quality of care? Has it improved the cost of care? What have been some of the impacts that we should look for in the experiences we've had and to see if it's going to have a big political impact in just a couple of years on those governor races? I think it has, and I've written quite a bit about um, uh, the problems with Medicaid expansion. Every state that has expanded, we've seen enrollment and spending off the charts. We've seen large um, numbers of people that are uh, not eligible for the Medicaid program enrolled because states are spending with federal taxpayer dollars. And there's been a lot of studies that have shown, you know, there's just not really good health outcomes and evidence of of positive health outcomes for Medicaid expansion overall. Thank you, Brian. That was very insightful. Um, You said that in words that I haven't been able to put together to explain to our audience the impact of what's going on with this uh, supposed COVID bill, much of which doesn't have anything to do with COVID. It has to do with um, Obamacare, expansion of Medicaid, increased subsidies, trying to tie in middle-income people to be more dependent on the federal government, look for them to give them something free. You know, everybody likes something free. So that's sort of what's happening here. The Medicaid expansion has worked its way into most of the states now, a majority of the states, 38 states, plus the District of Columbia, I assume. And so now since they didn't get as many people into the exchanges, which was their approach to get middle income involved, they're now trying to increase the subsidies for getting into the exchange. And then on top of that, as we've described in the past segments of this hour, there's more and more people that are going to get subsidies, whether it's the COBRA subsidies or unemployment subsidies, uh, giving them free health care. There's various ways that this administration is going on just to push out more and more federal dollars in the name of the pandemic, saying it's temporary, but it's not likely to stay temporary. Even the subsidies that you've talked about, the extra 5% on the regular Medicaid to coerce, to encourage states to adopt the Medicaid expansion. I'm not so sure how constitutional that is since the original bill was ruled unconstitutional, trying to coerce states. And it looks to me like it's more coercion. I'll give you more money over here if you do this. I think it's just more of the the camel's nose in the tent, this creeping and creeping and creeping into socialized medicine. We know that Medicaid is fraught with fraud and waste and abuse. It's been that way 
since the 70s when it was first really studied after it was implemented in the 60s. And it's wasteful money. We know that people are getting subsidies that shouldn't get subsidies. Studies in Oregon, Washington, California, there's just no real check and balances on the dollars that are flowing out. And we see organized crime getting more and more involved to grab up those dollars. And we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that are being wasted. But I thank you, Brian, for being on the program here and for letting me sort of parse in and out with questions and comments that you made in a previous presentation on uh, Fox News and, the, and their uh, financial um, channel. So let's take a quick break again for this audience, and we'll come back and we'll wrap up the hour with more on Healthcare Insight. See you in a minute. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. I want to continue with this program of reaching into other activities to present uh, on this um, program. Recently, last week, the um, Conservative Political Action Committee, or CPAC as many would know it, met and they had a panel on healthcare reform. It included Dr. Michael Burgess from Texas that I've worked with uh, many years ago. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ronald Jackson, who uh, is newly elected. He was the president's um, physician for many years, and he just got um, elected into Congress this year. So he's seen things at the White House when he was there, and now he's able to go over in Congress and be a vote on, um, on health care bills and be a voice on health care. And then the third panel is uh, Scott Burgess, who um, is involved with the Club for Growth and has been involved with healthcare issues. So I want to get into this panel and what they presented at CPAC. Dr. Burgess, Congress has bills in place, I think it's HR3, that would intervene more in the patient provider relationship. It also provides more government oversight and bureaucracy against, like the pharmaceutical industry. They're an easy whipping boy because they're not very perfect in their presentation, their pricing, and there have been issues that they justifiably should be criticized of. But if you go after and kick an industry that has the potential to develop life-saving drugs, how is that really going to benefit us? What about this HR3 and what's your opinion on, and give us an example maybe, 
on how a pharmaceutical industry can really make a major advances in saving human lives. Well, it's going to be tough because, you know, they passed H.R. 3 uh, the October before the pandemic started. Um, when you stop and think about it, Gilead Pharmaceuticals that they just wanted to trash because of the hepatitis C drug that they had developed, but it was pretty expensive. It had a, a launch price that the Democrats thought was too high. Gilead at that time was working on remdesivir. No one knew about the novel coronavirus. No one knew that this was going to be the drug that our president would receive in literally less than a year's time to help him in his battle against that. Why would we want to limit the ability to develop these types of products? Dr. Burgess, that's a great example. Can you expound on that and the development on uh, the time frame of the drugs we actually were able to generate for the uh, COVID and create these vaccines? January of 2020, we were told by all of the high public health officials that under the best of circumstances, it will take 18 months to develop a vaccine if everything goes perfectly, but nothing ever goes perfectly. I don't think they were making that up. That was their world that they lived in. Donald Trump changed the world, and they built that vaccine literally in record time. <laughs> you worked at the FDA. Okay, tell me, what the heck takes so long after the company gets all that data and they give it to you? What are you going to find that says, oh, don't release this drug This 95% effective? I'm sorry. I got... You, that was, you didn't ask that question, but I'll, I'll offer that as an observation. It is, uh, we, we have to be careful on the legislative front to be sure, but also on the regulatory front, because we saw how regulations actually can be quite damaging and I think killed people. Since you mentioned regulations are so important and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is critical in getting these things approved, what are you looking for in the next FDA commissioner that President Biden uh, has yet to finalize and introduce that candidate? Well, they do need to be high energy, right? Because there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, you need someone who knows the agency. Scott Gottlieb, in many ways, uh, that President Trump chose as his first FDA director, an ideal person. Never hesitated to tell you that he was the smartest person in the room, but it was it was well-placed. He was very knowledgeable, or is very knowledgeable. Um, I know Janet Woodcock is now perhaps in the running for that. She's been there for a long time, but she knows the agency. She knows it very well. She's seen things that go wrong, and that's important as well. Uh, you need someone with that, I think, with that institutional knowledge as well. Dr. Jackson, healthcare is not just about healthcare sometimes. Sometimes it's about your freedoms, your liberties, your choices. How do you see the federal government's expansion of health insurance, of more control over the patient, interfering with the patient-provider relationship. How do you see health care and liberty and freedom all sort of mixing together? Because you practice medicine. You've seen it from the physician side in a very recent time frame. You, you were a practicing physician before you came to Congress. So how do you see all this working together, is it really more than health care? 
Absolutely. You know, I think uh, healthcare is just another example of how the Democrats in the far left want to take control of our lives, to be honest with you. The more stuff that they take control of, the more that you are dependent on the federal government, the more they will control your lives and control your votes. And that's what it's about for them. And so they see this as a huge boon and they're doing, they're making great progress on this, but you know, they want to do whatever they have to do to, to get us all under that umbrella. They want to coerce, you know, we want choice. They want to talk about coverage. We want to talk about care. Coverage is not care, right? Anybody can be covered, but not have care. And that's the plan that they put forward. That's what Obamacare does. And so I feel like, you know, we, we really have to, you know, get back to a system that's driven by the market, a market-driven system. If we don't have a market-driven system, as long as the government or whoever it else is, is spending someone else's money, they will not care how much money they spend. And they'll drive us into, into incredible debt with the healthcare system. That's going to happen, right? And, uh, Dr. Jackson, as we've said, you've been practicing recently. Now you're in Congress. Tell us what you think about services that you've seen and what you think about the VA system, that is the Veterans Administration that typically helps those wounded soldiers, those people who are veterans that have been in the service and have been injured. Isn't it really a single-payer system as a sample, and how has it been working? Don't take this the wrong way. I'm a veteran. I'm a big fan of the VA. But the VA is a perfect example of what we don't want to happen to our country in general. If we get government-mandated, government-controlled health care, it's going to look just like that. The bureaucracy will grow huge, and that's what's happened in the VA to some extent. The, it's, it's a massive bureaucracy that's between the patient and the doctor. And all of the resources are consumed in that bureaucracy, and they never make it to the patient. So we have to get back to a system of health care that we can afford, that, that's accessible, that's quality, and, and, and that everybody has access to. And that's, that's really where we need to go with this. And a perfect example, Dr. Mentioned it actually, but you know, President Trump got out there, and President Trump did what needs to be done in healthcare in general. And I think that if he got a second term, you know, he'd talked to me before about it. We'd we'd discussed it. And one of his big agenda items was going to be to go after healthcare and do to healthcare what he's done to so many other areas in our government, and that was in large part to deregulate healthcare. Right? The regulations in healthcare they they drive up the cost unbelievably. Right. And uh, the, the reason that we got the three vaccines that we have right now, the only reason we got those three vaccines is because of the foresight and the, and the leadership of President Trump bringing the, the academic sector, the, the, the private sector, and academia together with a focused a goal. Dr. Jackson, how do we take the lessons that we've learned from Operation Warp Speed, getting the academia and the private markets together, getting the government coordinating that and getting solutions so rapidly that has never been done before. How do we replicate that so as we go into the future, face future problems, face future pandemics maybe? How do we replicate this whole issue that we cut down on time, we make things happen fast, we work together for the benefit of those people who would have otherwise died if we didn't get things to them fast enough? How do we change regulations so that we can really benefit from new advancements that are going to be coming along the pike here? Well, first and foremost, you've got to have a leader in the White House. 
right? Somebody who's going to push back because I've seen this 14 years in the White House. I've seen it all the time. Comes in, good idea, comes out, it makes sense. Everybody at the table thinks it's a great idea. And then some bureaucrat in the government says, we can't do that. There's a regulation or a rule or something that says we can't do that. And they abandon the idea because it's then considered not possible. President Trump didn't do that. Every time somebody came to him and said, we can't do that. And he goes, yes, we can. Well, we can't do that in rule of regulation. Change it. Get rid of it. I don't care. We're doing it. And he just pushes forward. We have to have leadership in the White House. Scott, let me turn to you. You're involved with the Coalition Against Socialized Medicine. Talk about that organization and also talk about this whole promise of Medicare for all. That's what the Biden administration was promoting so heavily during their campaign. What's that going to look like? What problems is that going to create? And how are you working to be sure that people understand the problems and the issues and the impacts, all negative, of going to a Medicare for all or a government option? Yeah, so let me start off by talking about the Coalition Against Socialized Medicine. ACU was the leader of this group. Club for Growth was also a founding member. And what these organizations pulled together with many other outside issue advocacy groups to do was to fight against that vision of Medicare for all. We think that we need to have Medicare for seniors. We need to protect Medicare, and we need to fight against this idea of a public option. You know, as I think about what these guys are doing on Capitol Hill, it's so much harder for an athlete in basketball to play defense. You get tired. And these guys have constantly been on defense about pre-existing conditions and wanting to rip from sick people. Instead, we need to go on offense, because it's a lot easier to go on offense against the Democrats. Did you guys know that straw poll that everybody filled out on policies, they talked about what are the top issues and top achievements from President Trump. One of those was repealing the individual mandate through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was a huge accomplishment for President Trump. Well, Joe Biden's going to actually try to take that down through executive order, through his health care plan, He wants to mandate that everybody buy in health insurance. And what's that going to do? It's going to make sure that health insurance companies are going to decrease choice and competition in the healthcare marketplace. That's going to jack up the costs. And when you talk about the cost of Medicare for all, man, you said that it's going to be free healthcare for everybody. Wait until they make it free and we'll see what happens with the real costs. Dr. Burgess, let me give you the last word. Talk about the difficulties of a physician goes through in dealing with the patient when you have so many other people, non-physicians, government, insurance companies, bureaucrats, interfering with your ability to deliver care to your own patient? Well, it's not just the government. Uh, certainly HMOs and now ACOs have done their share as PBMs, well. PBMs, yeah. PBMs, another structure that is unnecessary, but it brings, uh, brings nothing but increased costs and decreased access Look, I'll tell you, when I was in practice, the one thing I hated more than anything else was to have to call 1-800-Minneapolis to get uh, approval from my my patient to come in the hospital. And I'd ask the person on the other end, are you licensed to practice medicine in Texas? Well, no. And then I said, well, then you shouldn't be practicing medicine in Texas because I'm in Texas, my patient's in Texas, the hospital's in Texas. Look, uh, I I come from a, I'm a third-generation physician. My grandfather, who I never knew, uh, was a doc. My dad was a doc. I remember my dad telling me, our contract, are, we are the advocates for the patient at the end of the day. If you work for the hospital, if you work for the insurance company, if you work for the government, 
guess what? You're advocating for something that interest that may be counter to what your patient is. We need to get back to being the patient advocates. Let doctors be doctors. Uh, let's use all these fine tools we have, but let's let's use them to make life better for patients and not for the government. Well, thank you one and all for your comments today, and I want to thank uh, CPAC for the panel they put on and letting me slice and dice and comment on their uh, presentation on healthcare reform. I hope this program this week was informative to you. I hope that it gave you some new thoughts and insights on healthcare, what's going on with the uh, Biden administration. So join us again next week for Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman signing off for this program on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.